This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Hey everyone, it's Major Garrett and welcome to our new podcast. Did you know we have a new feed completely separate from the takeout as well? Please just search Debriefing the Briefing. Click subscribe and then if you can, and we'd really love this, drop us a rating and or a review. Pretty soon, you'll have to be subscribed to the new feed if you want to hear new episodes of debriefing the briefing. Thank you, and now let's start the show. Today I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted. A lot of good brain power was involved in making a lot of fantastic decisions. Thank you very much, Mr. President. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity to work with you and your team. Thank you, Mr. President, Mr. Vice President. I'd like to thank the President for his leadership. The plans to reopen the country are close to being finalized. You mentioned that you're going to be speaking with the all the governors. What if they don't listen to you? Uh, they'll listen. They'll be fine. From CBS Audio, this is Debriefing the Briefing. Here's CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. Hello from Washington and welcome to Debriefing the Briefing, a summary of the White House daily coronavirus task force briefing, the April 14th Version was the 39th briefing of its kind, lasting only one hour and seven minutes, conducted in the Rose Garden. Among the highlights, the president said that he would soon announce plans to allow some states to reopen before May 1st, suggesting as many as 20 states might qualify. President Trump also said that he is ordering a halt to funding of the World Health Organization. Now, we should point out that in the budget the administration submitted to Congress in early February. It already called for having last year's budget allocation to the World Health Organization from $123 million to $58 million. The president accused the World Health Organization of, quote, severely mismanaging the COVID-19 response. President Trump also said that the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin had worked out an arrangement with the major airlines in America for something he called a payroll support program. No specifics were provided, but he said the airlines would be, quote, unquote, in good shape. And then talking about his relationship to governors across the state, the president said he would defer to them and to mayors, but also said something interesting, which will launch our conversation. He said, if governors don't comply with the guidelines from the federal government, quote, we'll have to do something that is very serious, close them up and start all over again. I want to bring in Jonathan Turley, constitutional law professor at the George Washington University here in the nation's capital and also a CBS News contributor. Jonathan, let's launch our conversation with things not said at this briefing on Tuesday, but the comments that drew so much attention at the April 13th briefing. Somebody's the president of the United States. The authority is total. total. And that's the way it's got to be. Total. The authority is total. It's total. 
It's total. And the governors know that. The authority of the President of the United States during national emergencies is unquestionably plenary. So, Jonathan Turley, evaluate the assertions made on both counts. Well, they're both fundamentally flawed on a constitutional basis. Now, the Constitution was actually designed to bar this type of claim of absolute power. The, the greatest motivating value of the Constitution is to avoid the concentration of power in any one branch or certainly any individual. And that value is protected by a number of provisions, uh, but most importantly, federalism or states' rights and the separation of powers. So what the president is talking about here is perfectly incomprehensible from a constitutional standpoint. He has persuasive authority, but not command authority over the state. Now, what's what's interesting is that federalism is actually our strength in this pandemic. Uh, As opposed to many European countries that have very centralized systems, We have a system that could have been designed for this. Uh, It is a system that allows for highly tailored responses by people who know the most about their states. So this is a really shining moment for the United States in relying on on states. Now, federalism was not designed to control a pandemic. It was designed to combat tyranny. And simply calling it you know, plenary power doesn't change that fact. When the vice president's talking about plenary power, that's largely power within the federal system during moments of emergency. It is certainly not used as basically um, the negation of the federalism system that is the basis of the 10th Amendment. From a constitutional perspective, Jonathan, is it shocking to hear a president assert that the power of the presidency is total? Yes, it's very alarming, and it, it, it's, a, it's an odd change because President Trump has been saying for three weeks, in my view correctly, that the federal government is supposed to have a secondary role in the pandemic. That is true. That is the, the primary responsibility to prepare for a pandemic and respond to a pandemic rests with the states. And we had this debate in 2002. I was actually a critic of the model law, which is being used across the country, that gives governors individually a huge amount of power. And at the time, states were insistent that they needed this power and that this is their responsibility, not the federal responsibility. And so President Trump is right in that respect. I mean, there are failures here. The primary failures that we've seen is really are belong to the governors, not the federal government. He's right. They failed to prepare. There were numerous reports warning governors that they would be short of ventilators in the pandemic that most of us feared back in 2002. And that was a respiratory pandemic. So he's right about that. He's, but that's what is so curious here is that he goes into a press conference and wipes it all out and just says, you know what, they only issued those orders because I let them do it. And it, it, was, it was a really alarming but also baffling statement by the president. And then at the Tuesday briefing, the president struck, a com- not a, if not a completely different note, a note that was notably different. The governors would be very, very respectful of the presidency 
Again, this isn't me. This is the presidency. So the president said that these guidelines, the governors and the mayors and other local officials would have a great role in implementing as they saw fit. But then he also left that thing hanging out there. If they displease us, if they do something we don't like, we'll have to do something very serious, close them up and start all over again. I don't think you or I know what he means by that. But it does feel as if, Jonathan, the president is trying to walk back this, and there might have been something approximating a constitutional intervention with him within the uh, four walls of the West Wing sometime on April 13th or April 14th. Yeah, I, I think that's clearly what happened is there was a clarifying moment with lawyers, because he was promising in the Monday press conference that they would be issuing legal opinions uh, to support that position of, uh, of, of his. And um, I, I, many of us sort of chuckled because it, it, it would be very difficult to find anyone that would say that you have a power that the, the Constitution expressly says you do not. And even in a city where you can throw a stick on any corner and hit 10 lawyers, you wouldn't hit one that supported that proposition. So as a matter of constitutional law, Jonathan, is this is not a murky area. This is not an area where you could say, well, there's some body of law that strikes this balance and some body of law that's over here. This is not a murky place, if I hear you correctly. No, the Constitution says that when federal push comes to state shove, states win. It, it, the Tenth Amendment creates the default position in the states. It says that unless we expressly gave you the power, it rests with the states and with individuals. It could not be more clear. So what's different about the 10th Amendment and some other amendments is the 10th Amendment is structural. It is creating rooms within our Constitution to confine people. That's not like other very important rights, but they are values that need to be protected, like free speech. This goes to the structure, the superstructure of the constitutional system. So this is not a close question. It's not a murky question. The Supreme Court has ruled repeatedly on the Tenth Amendment, striking down federal policies and laws that intrude upon the states, even a law that dealt with the disposal of nuclear waste. The Supreme Court stepped in and said, whoa, you're going too far because you're, tr- you're asking states, you're telling states they have to take possession of nuclear waste. Um, they used this to strike down part of the ACA, the Obamacare law, uh, dealing with Medicare. And on top of that, they have these cases which are called commandeering cases. And those are cases that say, not only can you not usurp state authority, you can't commandeer the state. So you can't coerce them into doing what you want them to do. And all of those cases are consistently against President Trump's stated position yesterday. And I'm sure that's what the Justice Department told him. The other thing they probably told him is that if you want us to take this to the court, when we get to the Supreme Court, our problem are going to be the five conservatives and particularly the two you appointed. That is the best shot you've got are with the liberals. And I doubt that's a position he wants to be in. Jonathan, another thing that's happened very recently is states on a regional basis have announced what they are calling compacts or cooperative arrangements, California, Oregon, and Washington, some northeastern states. Is there anything uh, constitutionally amiss or hazardous about that? No, they're perfectly free 
to coordinate their decisions on opening up their states. And I have to say, you know, what's fascinating about uh, President Trump is that he often has legitimate concerns, but they get lost in grotesque rhetoric. And this is an example. I think Trump is right. You know, we need to get this economy back rolling. He's also right that people treat the economy like it's just about dollars. You know, millions of people are very close to losing their dreams. They're, they're looking at trillions of dollars in debt, an economy that's been gutted like a trout. And the question is, what's their future? Now, that's not just dollars and cents. That's lives, real lives. And so what's, what's really unfortunate is that he is re- not able to fully explain that position. Um, so I think he's, he's right. I'm deeply concerned for my kids about keeping this economy frozen in amber because we've just handed our kids a debt that is just p- perfectly crippling for potentially for a generation. And I don't want, none of us want that. Before I let you go, Jonathan, uh, I want to ask you if you perceived in the remarks that drew so much attention that you say have no constitutional foundation beneath them, any echoes of some of the assertions made by the House Democratic managers during the impeachment proceedings, which suggested that from their vantage point, the president already had and would at some point in the future assert an overly broad definition of his authority or authorities. Do you find anything uh, disturbing or echoing in a alarming way about what you've heard recently as a as it compared to some of the things that House Democratic managers during the impeachment process suggested had already happened or would happen in the not too distant future? No, I don't think this is going to be a very good time for I told you so, because Impeachments are specific. You don't impeach people because they've got a bad attitude or a bad understanding or a robust view of their power. You impeach them for high crimes and misdemeanors. And the the record that the House put forward was premature and incomplete. And it was, in my view, a historic blunder by by insisting on impeaching the president by Christmas. We will never know if they could have made a stronger case because they decided to go forward with it. But as I said in my testimony, every president in my lifetime has argued clearly extra constitutional powers, including Barack Obama. Barack Obama was chastised by a court for arguing such an excessive view of executive uh, power that the judge said that it would effectively negate the constitutional structure, that it would, it would nullify our constitutional protection. So this is not unique in presidents exceeding or suggesting they can exceed their power. But Trump clearly uh, takes it to a far greater extent in terms of rhetoric, and it's unnerving. You know, Barack Obama was far more polished, but He made arguments that were breathtaking in terms of their scope. That's the voice of Jonathan Turley, constitutional law professor at the George Washington University. And we're happy to say CBS News contributor. Thank you so much. That is all for this episode of CBS Audio's Debriefing the Briefing. Until next time, I am Major Garrett in Washington.
If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.